When I was 10 years old, I asked my gran if she would make me a ham sandwich. I loved her ham sandwiches. The ham was sliced so thin you could practically see through it. And she would layer it so delicately and gently drape mustard mayo on it. And she was super down with Wonder Bread, which my mother was not. So this kind of sandwich is like one of the happiest points of my childhood. (laughs) But on this particular day, instead of pulling out the ham sandwich Wonder Bread concoction, my grand reached for her purse and pulled out a $10 bill. And she said, I'm out of ham, but you can run across the street and get some more. I was stricken. Me cross the street, walk past the health food store, the Baskin Robbins, and just waltz into the Alpha Beta butcher area and just ask him for some ham. It was like asking Frodo to take the ring to the cracks of Mount Doom. But Gran was not phased by my terror or my horror. She just said, Yeah, ask for a quarter pound of honey baked ham and make sure it's chipped. Honey, what? Was it a quarter pound? Was it a half pound? What's what's a pound? And what is chipped? Is that like some weird Irish lingo she brought over from the motherland that isn't actually a thing for American butchers? Like what? You know what I mean? And even if I managed to retain all of this and deliver it on cue and under pressure, would the butcher see me over the counter? Would my voice carry? I was just a little 10-year-old bony kid. What if the whole thing went to hell, in other words? Well, here's the thing. I wanted that ham sandwich and it was just across the street. So I marched over there and decided to give it a shot, but my heart was pounding. Quarter pound of ham, honey baked, chipped. Chipped means cut thin. It totally reminded me of an episode of Sesame Street I grew up watching that showed a little girl on the same mission. To this day, if you're a child my age, you might remember this episode. I still can recite her grocery list, container of milk, loaf of bread, stick of butter. I figured if that little cartoon girl in New York City could swing a grocery mission, surely I could manage it in Sleepy Lagoon and Nigel. And as you can imagine, it went splendidly. The butcher was very charmed by my very precise butchering lingo because chipped was in fact a thing. And he was super supportive of my gumption and treated me like the little lady I was, especially because I used please and thank you. I was beaming when I came home. No sandwich has ever tasted as good as that one did. And through the humble vessel of honey-baked ham, my grandmother gave me one of the most formative lessons in communication, and it was layered. I had to summon courage, remember instructions, advocate for myself with a stranger, modulate my tiny voice to sound bigger than it was, and you know what? I was rewarded for it. This is one of so many incredible communication lessons I received from the blessedly imperfect grown-ups in charge of raising me. Lessons that I worry are getting lost in this new generation of kids raised in hyper-protective, hyper-achieving, hyper-connected, hyper-on-point families. I interact with teenagers and young people on a pretty regular basis, and I've observed that some of the old fashioned arts of basic communication are fading. And it makes me sad, but it also just makes me worried. Are we raising a generation of kids that don't know the power of eye contact, who are unskilled at talking to adult strangers? Because remember, strangers are the ones that hire you for jobs. Strangers are the ones that help you purchase stuff at Nordstrom. Like, Strangers are not a bad thing. 
And yet sometimes I feel like we're raising kids that are afraid of people they don't know. I think we sometimes forget the value of understanding and studying and developing skills around human connection and communication and the art of self-advocacy. We forget that connection is worth exploring for its own sake, not just because it gets us the job we're after. Although let's be honest, if two equally qualified people walk into a job interview and one knows how to make a good first impression, the other doesn't, who's going to get that gig? You know what I mean? So this episode, you guys, is my attempt as a communication coach and as a mother to offer some tips, some ideas, and some interesting ways that people I've talked to have been going about doing this with their kids. And I want to make something super clear. I don't have this figured out. I'm mid-experiment with my kids. Only time will tell if my husband, Sal, and I have had any success here. But teaching our kids to communicate well is a huge priority for my husband and I. And if it's a priority for you too, I think you're going to dig this. So let's dive in. There are five big opportunities we as parents or caregivers have with teaching our kids to communicate well. And number one is this, shore up the basics. I cannot overstate how important eye contact and a good firm handshake are when it comes to making a first impression, especially if you have a girl child or especially if you are raising a person of color. Bias and stereotypes are often at work here, some of them completely unconscious and unintentional. And our kids need to know how to outmaneuver those stereotypes and biases so that they can shine as brightly as possible. And listen, if you're getting triggered by that, don't. This is not opinion. This is fact. I have a white son. I am not saying that white boys are the enemy. I'm just saying that if you happen to have a girl child or a child of color, boy or girl, they've got to work harder because of bias. Let me give you an example. There have been countless studies over the past 15 or 20 years that have showed this, but the most iconic studies come from, one comes from the National Academy of Sciences, and it found that academic institutions across the United States see a resume as more qualified for a lab manager position and warranting a higher salary, Natch, when the name at the top of the resume said John instead of Jennifer. Or how about the study out of Harvard Business School that found that minorities who quote-unquote masked their race in resumes got more job interviews? The bias is real. I'm not advocating that anybody whites their job resume to get in. All I'm saying is that it is real, and one of the levers that we have to overcome that bias, one of the most powerful levers we have is our first impression. I mean, I I remember when I went and got interviewed for an internship at the mayor's office, I was the scrappy Yahoo from the state school. And I was up against kids from Stanford and Cal and, you know, really talented people. And I know for a fact that the only reason I got that job alongside shoulder to shoulder with these powerful young men and women in that internship program was because of my first impression. I, I know this. My grades were nothing special. My school certainly wasn't anything special. So what do I mean by the basics of first impression? I'm talking about really three things. Eye contact, a really good handshake, and the ability to just make conversation. We know these things are in person. We know these things are important. 
But very rarely do I meet a child who knows how to shake a hand properly. And it makes sense. Shaking hands is kind of intimidating and scary. There's some physical space to negotiate. There's the grip. There's the eye contact. But it is critical. In a 2012 study led by the Beckman Institute researcher Florin Dolkos and Department of Psychology postdoctoral research associate Sanda Dolkos, They looked at the neuroscience of the handshake and found what we've all kind of known all along. A good handshake improves other people's perception of us, but here's what's cool. It actually decreases damage done when the conversation hits the inevitable speed bump. So not only do we impress with a handshake, but it's like putting a deposit in the mutual bank account so that when we screw up in conversation, as we often do, there's already goodwill in the bank. Why? because of a good handshake. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. The researchers found it, for God's sakes. Now, if you're listening to this and your child is on the spectrum, needless to say, this whole conversation is much more complicated and nuanced and difficult. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying our role as parents is to make the attempt over and over and over again to shore up these basics. And one of my favorite examples along those lines is Temple Grandin. If you don't know her, Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She's also a consultant to the livestock industry on animal behavior, an autism spokesperson, a TED speaker, and so much more. In fact, Claire Danes played her in an HBO film that's spectacular. I highly recommend it. And it's so funny, until recently, Temple Grandin was the most famous person with autism. But I do believe Greta Thunberg has overtaken her on that one. But part of Grandin's success is thanks to her mother's tireless work teaching her child how to communicate in a world that made absolutely no sense to her on so many levels. But her mother taught her manners, techniques for navigating social situations, and even though the doctors were like, and this was back in you know the 50s when they were like, you should institutionalize her. And the mother was like, I don't freaking think so. But because of all that work, Temple Grandin has gone on to do incredible things in this world in ways nobody could have imagined. That's how important it is and how powerful it can be. In fact, my friend Kathy, hey, Kathy, her son's on the spectrum as well. And she says she's taught him that he doesn't necessarily need to make full-blown eye contact when he meets people or talks with people, and that it's okay to look at someone's forehead because that eye contact thing can be really, a lot of data gets transmitted via the eyeball, and it can be really overwhelming for some of us. So she says, look at the forehead. And Kathy, if you're listening, it turns out that you are completely backed by science. In 2019, researchers at Edith Cohen University found that, quote, People are not very sensitive to the specific gaze of focus of their partner to their face. Instead, they perceive direct gaze towards their face as eye contact. So don't get hung up on seeking out the eyes of your audience. Just look generally at their face and let the eye contact illusion experienced by your partner do the work for you. End quote. So good on you, Kathy. As for my house, my two older daughters kind of rock at handshakes pretty Well, actually, I I shouldn't say that. I think they're proficient at handshakes and they're getting better. We're still working on it with my son. But my husband literally coaches our kids out loud, as do I when they meet new people. We say, eye contact, handshake, nice to meet you. We repeat those three things if we don't see them doing it. And we say it out loud over and over again until they do it. It drives our kids crazy. 
but they know if they just make eye contact, shake hands, say nice to meet you, we won't say anything and we won't embarrass them, right? It's a virtuous loop. But here's a pro tip. If your child doesn't comply with your suggestion or request for the handshake, the nice to meet, the eye contact, resist the temptation to make excuses for them and say, oh, they're just shy. Instead, consider saying, it's something we're working on, so thank you for the opportunity to let us practice. I think labeling someone as shy makes it sound like they're born with some sort of defect that makes connection with a stranger awkward and impossible. It's not. These things are learned behaviors. All of it is an affectation of some sort, right? All of it is cultural grooming. And this is an example of cultural grooming and conditioning that is helpful, that is useful, that is a secret weapon. Okay, so I want to introduce you, one of the people that lives in my neighborhood who I just adore, very impressed with her children. She had something really interesting to say about how she taught her kids to shore up the basics. And I wanted you to hear it from her words. But as you're about to hear in this interview, you can hear my dog whining. (laughs) because my dog lives for Holly. So if you hear Bowie in the background whining, just God bless. So the reason I want to interview you is you guys moved down the street. How long ago was that? Uh, Two years. Two years ago. One day I was just minding my own beeswax and you introduced me to your kids or I somehow met your kids. And then the next time they saw me, both of them at different times said, hi, Mrs. Sally and Benny, how are you? And they looked me in the eye and I was like, what, what just, what just happened? I feel like I've been struck by lightning. And I realized like, why was that so impressive to me that they just used my name and asked me a question. And then I realized it's because teenagers don't usually do that. And what killed me about that is that, um, that's actually how you get a job. It's actually how you do well in an interview. It's how you make good networking relationships. It literally has the power to change the trajectory of your life, whether or not you can make eye contact, say hello, use a person's name and ask them a question. And that got me thinking about how few teenagers and young people, not even just teenagers, don't know how to do that. So I want to ask you, you have two not one, but two examples of children who are now teenagers who know how to communicate with adults. How did you do that? Oh, well, first, thank you for the kind compliment. You're welcome. I'm going to take that in, soak it in. And in my replies, I will also fully validate that they slip, I slip. And when I find that I slip or they slip, it's because I haven't been leading by example and Mm. I haven't reinforced some very strong boundaries that I'll tell you about and that there's usually a reason why it slips. But for the most part, I agree and feel very strongly, as does my husband, that manners mm-hmm. are everything. And will from when they were a year old learning to say please to supermarket checkout people saying thank you or job interviews, that yes. it will serve them well. That's exactly right. And my kids have said that we are the strictest of all of their friends and that they're, I've had other parents say the same thing, like, wow. And it didn't happen just overnight. No. Certainly. They're 15, my son's 15 and daughter Ella Jane is 17. And we started when they were very young. And it started with please and thank you. Yes. And that process takes 
thousands and thousands of repetition exactly. moments, right? I remember yes. being like, how many freaking times yeah. am I going to tell you to say please? But I don't respond to somebody barking orders at me, certainly not a child. Was that part of your... It was. In fact, when both Scott and I were raised, very turbulent upbringings, but incredibly important to have manners. And in fact, we talked to the kids. I told them we were coming on this broadcast and they know Mm -hmm. you, of course, and think Mm -hmm. so highly of you and said, okay, we're going to be talking about this. Can you think of ways that we have encouraged you to have these manners and, you know, things that your parent, your friend's parents do or don't do. And both of them said ordering in restaurants. I don't really like cooking. We go out probably twice a week, more than we should. But from when they were tiny that we taught them, you look at the server, you order. And in fact, I remember one time Elle's like, I can't do it. And I said, okay, you're not going to eat. I love it. I love it. She didn't. But yeah. That's another thing, parenting. Yeah. But I mean, with manners, everything you have to follow. You through. have like, to follow through. If you don't say please, then you're not getting this candy. Then you don't give them the candy. I agree. And how many times have you been in line where mm-hmm. parents like, okay, if you don't do this, you're not going to get that, and then they just give it, and yeah. that's the kid. Kids are smart, and that drives my kids crazy. Like in class, they'll they'll see the teacher threaten and threaten and threaten and never follow through, and it drives them nuts because they're kind of used to justice working itself out at home. Because it's like if I say no, it literally means no. One of the things that I find most compelling about your kids is that they ask me questions. That to me, my friend Amy Vanderbosch, shout out to you if you're listening to this, Amy. She trains her kids to ask appropriate small talk questions. And I'm trying to train my kids appropriate small talk questions and how do you make interesting conversation questions, which is like distinction, right? So how did you get your kids to know, to ask me, hey, Mrs. Betty, how was your day? I'm like, shit, my kids aren't even asking me that question. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure you've heard this from your other, like they showed the best of themselves to other people. Mm, I will say- mm good for them for asking yeah, you that. Like, yeah. they, I may not get that at home. Mm. We have said, find a way to compliment or ask a question. Like, <sighs> even if it's like, oh, I like your shirt, Bronwyn. Where did you get that? Or amazing with you, we, mm-hmm. we have the dogs in common. Mm-hmm. And we have, again, tried to lead by example. I love how your friend said an interesting question because mm-hmm. you're right. It's easy. It's, how are you? Yeah. But a specific thing like, oh, did you take Bowie for a walk mm-hmm. today? Mm-hmm. Or so Bowie I like that. I might have to. Don't you love how the best ideas are borrowed? I know. So, Always. Yeah. But there's nothing new <laughs> under the sun, honestly. Yeah. But that is interesting. The power of a compliment. I feel like I was a very lonely only child growing up. And I, my, my mom and I moved a little bit <laughs> random intervals and I would be dropped into these new schools. I think I went to three schools in one year. And the only way I made friends was by leading with compliments. Like, wow, I really like your pencil case. And it's crazy how powerful that is because it shows, and there's research that shows this first impression because we're human animals, we're always looking to see, are you friend or are you foe? And if we lead with a compliment, we're demonstrating right away, I am safe. I'm friend. Now you still have people that are jerks. It'll be like, you know, I I remember being in freshman year in high school in a homeroom with 
total strangers, most of them, because I was a W and none of my friends were Ws. And I looked at this girl, she had this gorgeous hair, and I said, oh my gosh, how did you get your hair to look that beautiful? It looks so great. And she goes, it's called a curling iron. And I was like, okay, well, you're not going to be my friend. Fuck you. <laughs> That's so but isn't that, but nine yeah. times out of 10, leading with a compliment is a really smart strategy. The kids were raised here for a few years, and then we moved to London for a few years, and right. then we moved to Santa Monica for a few years. And then when we moved back, the school was full. So then they also then had to go to another new school. So they oh have had gosh. a lot of practice in being the new kid. Like I said, maybe that's a commonality too. Wow. And I remember specifically in London that we practiced together. Like they would say to me like, okay, mom, you volunteered there today. Did you make a friend? And I'd say, oh, I was kind of scared. I didn't know anybody and I'm still learning the money. And the kids would come home from school like, okay, we sat with someone and like doing it together. That is so sweet. That conversation thing to me, you guys, is another really huge part of the basics thing. I think kids learn small talk just fine from watching us navigate the world, but I do believe we have to teach them how to create meaningful or at least interesting conversation. That is a very much learned skill. In my house, we try and do this over dinner. And man, when I forget to do this, like with intention, and I go on autopilot because I'm busy or I'm tired or whatever, and I fail to set up interesting dinner conversation, all hell breaks loose. We got fart jokes, possible actual farting happens, complaining, shade throwing. I mean, it gets ugly. In the absence of interesting conversation, it's like Lord of the Flies happens and it's not my favorite dinnertime situation. So our approach is instead to tee up an interesting question or two or three to everyone at the very beginning. Now, when I'm by myself with the kids, it, it, I tend to be a little heavy handed. Like I'm, I'm asking questions like, when is the most scared you've ever been? And what really means blah, blah, blah to you? And they're like, okay, Oprah, pass the salt. I'm not saying a word. So Sal's way better than I, than I am. But Sal will come up with really interesting ones. Like if you could live anywhere, where would it be and why? Or if you could choose to be an animal, who, what would you be? Or would you rather be invisible or would you rather fly? The quirkier the question, the more the kids engage. And I love hearing what they say. Realistically, you know, I doubt my kids are running this like meaningful conversation game at school, at the lunch tables, but I want them to know what it feels like to have a juicy, interesting, fun, connective conversation. I think that's important. I just want them to know what it feels like so that they know that there there is some other way to converse that isn't complaining, venting, or gossiping. You know what I'm saying? And I believe interesting questions have a kind of power or magic to them. I really believe that. And in fact, researcher Arthur Aaron designed an experiment to conjure closeness between strangers that included some deep eye contact work up front and a very interesting series of questions. And I'll have a link to those questions in my show notes, which by the way, if you haven't signed up for my show notes, dude, come on. Sign up. It's so fun. And there's little, like, there's just fun things that I send every time. BronwynCommunications.com. Go sign up. Anyway, I'll have a link to the questions that the researchers asked in my show notes. But basically, what they were trying to do was create closeness between strangers. And what these questions and what this practice actually ended up doing was causing several of the research subjects to fall in love. I know. It's amazing. 
And so like what kind of questions you might ask? Basically, the way they set it up is the questions started kind of light and fun and then got more and more intimate. So for example, it started off with something like, what person would you choose as a dinner guest? And then it kind of evolved to what is your most cherished memory? And it just kind of went on from there. I mean, I live for that kind of conversation. Small talk sucks. It's necessary, but I try and get through it as fast as possible. So to sum up, guys, I'm a huge believer that just shoring up the basics, if you get nothing else from this episode, double down on your efforts to shore up the basics. Handshake, eye contact, nice to meet you, conversation. It's huge. Okay, so number two, remember your leverage. This lesson came to me from my new friend, Amanda, whom you are about to meet as well. Amanda has two amazing teenage daughters who are great little communicators. Whenever I see those two, I always feel like I've been greeted warmly and that they've seen me and heard me. And I was really impressed. And so we're carpooling to a children's musical theater. And I was like, hey, Amanda, can I borrow you for five minutes? Tell me how you're doing this. Tell me how you're using your leverage. Check this out. Okay, so how do you use your leverage to teach your kids to communicate well? Well, when I first heard this idea, my kids didn't even have cell phones yet, and I was really against it. I was trying to wait till high school, and I heard this woman, so this is not my idea, it's somebody else's, and she said, I make my kids listen to four podcasts a month, and that's their currency, and that's what they have to do to be able to pay for their phone. And I was like, oh my God, I love this because I'm actually getting something out of it rather than just handing over this whole device that opens a whole other world, which scares me to death. It does scare me to death. But the weird thing about these devices is that they're also gateways to like Greta Thunberg, who's lighting up the world with climate change. They can go watch her TED talk. They can hear Brene Brown. They can, you know, it's incredible what these devices offer. So I'm curious when you told them that that was going to be the currency where they're like, oh my God, mom. No, no, No. because they wanted phones so bad. (laughs) They were like, mom, we know that you're watching that. Can we, can, we'll do it. We'll do it. We will absolutely, because everybody else has a phone. They were the only ones. My kids are the only one. We have a we have family phones that they swap around and take when they need them, but they don't belong to them. Right. But which is genius. I was asking your daughter, I was like, tell me about the family phone. Mm -hmm. We used to be a lot more strict. Like there used to be literally nothing but texting and phone calling. And I've extended it to her Snapchats on there, but they, it's something that they take for short periods of time and then put away, right. which to me is, it's what I have to do with my phone. Right. I have to lock it up right. in the liquor it's cabinet. True. Right, right. <laughs> That's where my phone lives during the day. Okay. So then my question is, how do you decide what podcast to send? I mean, obviously mine, duh. No, but I right. mean, honestly, like what's your process? Like what podcast do you, have you really dug that you're like, you got to listen to this one? Well, to be honest, like the, they've only had phones for two months now. So this has gone this on. This is brand, brand new. new. So <gasps> I'm still trying to figure it out. So the process, you asked me, how do I choose? Well, the first two that I assigned to them were about social media and the dangers of social media. Because they hear me say, Genius. social media, you know, it's bad. And they're like, everybody else has it. And yeah. I'm like, I, I don't care what everyone else is doing. Yeah. You're my kids. That argument will never work no, with me. No, Like that's no, not an <laughs> No, no, I'm not, I, I'm not playing that game and I still am not. And so that's what they got first. So they were able to hear from someone else's perspective. It's not just me. Like, this is a thing. There are a lot of people that believe it's not 
it's not good for your brain right now. No, and you it's don't not. realize how dangerous it could be. You just can't. It's they don't an, understand. It's an addictive they don't understand loop. that yeah. on Facebook, people don't put the bad; they only put the good. And you see all of this, and that's what they think. They think they have to have that, and they have to look like that, and they have to be like that. So I started with that. So then they've had two on body image, so different perspectives. You know, there was one she was a supermodel, but it was always super self conscious of herself. Was this a TED talk? It was a TED talk. I know yes. that one. So I did. I did that. So there have been two very different ones on body image. They did a Steve Jobs one where he was talking about grit. I'm sure you've seen that. Lots of people where failure, it comes as a disguise and could be a blessing. So that was a good one. And they, the woman that talked about this originally, she made the kids take notes and they would talk about it. So I really haven't gone that far. We're just trying to kind of open discussions. Yeah. And and making it, because for me, podcasts are such a joy to consume that I think maybe it's smart to not make them take notes because it becomes a a source of pleasure to right. keep learning. And they they actually like it. They're like, oh, mom, when's the last one going to come out? When are you going to assign? But I'm trying to plant so many seeds all the time. Just, it's not always natural to sit down and talk about what a healthy friendship is like. You know, you don't sit down and do that. Do we talk about it? We do, but it just gives me a chance to kind of plant the seeds. And I actually think about it. I'm like, what are we going to talk about next month? What That's do I want to... amazing. Right, I'm just trying to get it in, in the short amount of time. I'm sure we all do. We just, we want to teach our kids so much and they roll their eyes at me and they kind of go, you know, I mean, they're so tired of hearing me talk all the time about lessons and, oh, mom, just stop. Just let me tell you the bad thing that happened. (laughs) Stop trying to make me see it from someone else's perspective and what they were feeling, you know, sometimes. So I just thought if I using it as leverage, they're hearing it, even if they want to hear it or not. And, And if they don't do it, they don't get their phone. And that's the thing too, is I think people equate rules and boundaries with battles of will and screaming, and it's not. It's just consequence, choice and consequence. Neutral. Everything's neutral, but it has to have the consequence, and that's the hardest part. Right. And I think you have to be consistent. They know I'm going to take it away. I've always, you know, know, you have to follow through. It's the worst. Right. But to go back to your question, they want those phones. So that I'm using it as leverage. It's amazing. Didn't Dr. Phil used to say, find your kid's currency. Like this is their currency and you are going to listen to my lessons of wisdom that I want you to listen to. And you can have that phone that you've wanted. So that's it. It's so funny. Remember when Fortnite was like stealing everybody's children, like zombies and everybody was complaining about it. And I remember thinking like, you, you actually own the technology. (laughs) Like it's your house. It's your device. Like rip that shit out of the wall. If you have to, like they were sending them to detox camps, which is basically just summer camp, right? That we grew up with, meaning there was no electronics. But I agree. I think we don't use, we don't realize how much power we have, but we also have to be willing to sit with the huge emotions that come up for us when we watch them completely unravel because we're following through on something we said we were going to do, right? Which is like its own episode in and of itself, right? Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you. Loved that. Brilliant. My daughter gets her very own iPhone when she graduates eighth grade, and I am so doing this, but I'm not going to make her listen to my podcast. Poor thing has to live with me. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so one, shore up the basics. Two, remember your leverage. Three, get out of their way. 
Well, it's been said that our generation, I guess my generation, because I don't know how old you are listening to this, but my generation is the least parented generation in recent history. But we have somehow, of course, turned this upside down and become the most parenting generation in recent history. It's like a badge of courage that we do everything for our kids. They cry, we run, they whine, we accommodate. And I fall into this trap way too often, especially when I'm too fried to remember my skills after a long day. When I'm doing it right, I generally try and remember that my job isn't to protect, enable, and emotionally shelter my kids. That ain't it. My job is to feed them, clothe them, and love them. And the rest of it is up to them. Fancy vacations, private tutoring, store-bought Halloween costume, 100% optional. I'm not saying I don't offer my kids those things because I do, but I know that they're fun time extras that I would have zero hesitation cutting off if it ever got in the way of my primary responsibilities of feeding, clothing, and loving my kids. I figure if I'm doing my job right, this home that I'm creating is full of light and joy and love, but that home is meant for recharging, not for hiding, not for avoiding, not for having me fight their battles. I try and remember to get out of their way. It's funny. In fact, just this week, one of my kids had a problem that needed to be addressed with a teacher, and I was just about to reach for my phone to send a quick email explaining the issue, but I caught myself. I grabbed my laptop, handed it to my child, and I said, I'm happy to give you feedback on whatever draft email you compose, but this is between you and your teacher. What do you think is the best way to approach this? I got out of her way. While I'd love to say that my daughter took up the challenge with a twinkle in her eye, I can't say that. She burst into tears and said she didn't know where to begin and she thought she was going to get yelled at and she threw herself face down on the couch. But seeing her react like that validated my decision to hand that problem right back to her. I told her, look, it's okay to feel nervous, honey, but learning how to write that kind of email is pretty important for her age. And I explained that to her. And I said, look, babe, if anyone was up to this challenge, it's you. And I'll review it before you hit send and make sure it's not bonkers. But lo and behold, after 10 more minutes of sniffling and grousing and throwing herself around, she went to the computer and constructed a great note. I looked it over. There was nothing wrong with it. She signed her name. She hit send. And she went to the teacher the next day to face the music. And he was super understanding and receptive and appreciated that she came to him herself. She was beaming when she came home to tell me that story. I mean, that's a ham sandwich moment. You know what I'm saying? When we do things for our kids, we reinforce their worst fears that they aren't capable and the world is just too hard and too scary for them and that mistakes are not welcome. Better to let the experts handle it. And by experts, I mean us, the parents. One of my all-time favorite techniques that one of my friends just recently told me about, sort of in this bucket of getting out of your kid's way, comes from my friend Dell and Colleen. So Colleen, literally, I've known her for 39 years. She and I have been friends. It's crazy. But Colleen and Dell have four boys, the oldest of which is 11, the youngest of which is six. And Dell and Colleen instituted a policy of calling the grandparents each week. But get this, Dell and Colleen don't dial the numbers. They leave a notepad beside the phone with the grandparents' phone numbers. And each boy, each week, must, on his own time, call the grandparents. That means each boy has to learn how to dial a phone, 
leave a message and wait for the beep, or how to initiate a phone conversation. For example, hi, Grandpa, this is John Paul. Dell said that there is nothing more awesome than hearing one of his boys shooting the shit with his grandma and grandpa down the hallway while Dell's, you know, doing whatever. By the way, Dell didn't use the word shit. I, I did. I, I swear sometimes. But the thing, he said the things they chat about are just amazing. And the boys think up things to talk, like over the course of the week, the boys will kind of mentally prepare and think of things they want to tell their grandparents on those phone calls. It's just incredible. Amazing things happen when we set our kids up for success by getting out of their way and allowing them to climb up over obstacles by themselves, to face the world by themselves. And sometimes it's in small ways, like letting them call their grandparents or letting them fight a battle with their teacher without your help. But they build muscle around that. And that way, when they leave, they're strong, right? They're strong. Fourth opportunity we have as parents, my friends, show them the power of noticing. And I mean this noticing on two different levels, right? On one level, I took a parenting course way back in the day when I, it was when I had my second baby because my toddler, my oldest was like, are you kidding me? There's another one? Like she was not happy. It was crazy. And I was outmatched. I'm an only child. I didn't know what to do with two kids. So anyway, I took this parenting course, shout outs to love and logic program that was taught to me by Joan. Love you, Joan. But I remember one of the best tips they gave me was the concept of noticing. Instead of brainless praise, they taught, and I honestly, I have to give props to Mulberry School too. They taught us this too. But instead of brainless praise, they said, casually notice your kids in the act of doing something well. Specifically, start noticing when your kids are communicating well. So for example... I noticed how you made eye contact and warmly thanked the waiter just now. Nice work, right? No big whoop, just a drive-by compliment. My oldest daughter was introduced to a boy at her age at a high school information night recently. And the parent introduced the boy and said, this is my son, so-and-so. And my daughter looked at the boy and said, nice to meet you. I'm Stella. She looked at him warmly. And he was like a complete deer in the headlights. <laughs> but I was so proud of my daughter for making eye contact with the boy and using her voice to introduce herself. I didn't have to do it. And I should have noticed it in that moment and I didn't and I'm going to do it tonight. But when I say noticing, I don't just mean notice them caught in the act. Teach them to notice what they like about communicators. My friend Chelsea Green, who's a professor of classical guitar, a college professor, she said something she does is she gets her students to notice sort of the styles and techniques of other people they admire. And in the noticing, it allows them to build that aspect of themselves. So if you think about this in a communication context, ask your kid to notice who communicates well, who has a presence that they admire, and how might they incorporate that or grow that aspect of themselves. But Chelsea reminds me, this also works really well in the negative. Have your kid notice who doesn't communicate well. What don't they like about it? And how might they make sure that isn't coming out in their communication style? Very powerful meta. It's kind of a meta view of everyday human interactions that you teach them. And that that metacognition, that ability to pull up and notice, so powerful as a life skill. Speaking of life skills, that leads me to the sort of my fifth and final opportunity we have as parents. And I call this one look in the mirror. I mean, the toughest part of all this work is the work we do on ourselves. In May of 2019, Niraj 
Chuck Shee at the New York Times wrote an article called, Your Kids Think You're Addicted to Your Phone. <laughs> and it discussed the findings of a recent report for Common Sense Media. And listen, you already know what this is. And the findings of this report weren't, I mean, they, they're exactly what you think they are. More adults are worried that their kids are addicted to phones, and more kids are worried that their parents are addicted to phones, but that's not what's interesting about that report. What I think is interesting about that report is that neither party is arguing as much about it. Think about that. Parents and children are arguing less about their growing concerns about the other's addiction. Why does that worry me? Because the researchers themselves posited that that could be because of apathy and resignation. Apathy and resignation are devastating emotions, absolutely devastating. In fact, right now, I want you to do a facial expression right now that conveys apathy and resignation. Do it right now. Nobody's watching. Just do it. Make an apathy face. I'm making mine right now. My guess is that you have conjured up what is called in the popular parlance of our time, resting bitch face or I'm dead inside face. You guys, these faces mean something. I think these faces are the canaries in the emotional coal mines. And let me explain to you what I mean by this, because I'm seeing resting bitch face and I'm dead inside face way more often these days. In 1975, Dr. Edward Tronick and his colleagues presented what they named the Stillface Experiment at the biennial meeting of the Society for Research in Child Development. And here's how the experiment worked. And don't you worry, I'm going to include a link to the actual video clip that shows you one of these experiments in action because it's breathtaking. Here's how it works. A mother would interact with her baby as usual, cooing and making sweet sounds and just all the things we do to our babies when they're little and holding eye contact. And the baby, you can see it in the video, the baby's just loving it and the mom is loving it and everybody's peachy and it's just all very darling. But after about three minutes, the researcher instructs the mother to maintain eye contact, but to go completely neutral in the face, zero expression. What happens to the baby next is nothing short of heartbreaking. The baby first tries to engage the mother with sweet sounds to kind of snap her out of that still neutral face, but the mother is instructed to maintain still face. And so the baby immediately begins to fall apart. They cry, they twist, they turn their face away from the mother. It's almost like it's too much to bear. And finally, after a few minutes of this agony, the researcher allows the poor mother to comfort and reassure the baby. And, and basically, they're both in tears at this point. What's amazing about this experiment is that it's one of the most replicated findings in all of social psychology, and it crosses culture and gender. And it has been suggested that when we don't make eye contact with our kids when they speak to us, when we're too engaged with our own screens, we are effectively still facing them. And guess what happens next? Our little ones experience a kind of emotional free fall, the consequences of which play out in their lives at school and with their friends and when they're alone with their devices. This is something I personally struggle with, and I've got a hunch most of us struggle with it. And I want to be super crystal clear about something. I believe in boundaries, I believe it's okay to say to my child, stop interrupting my grind. I'm in mid-sentence. I'm working. You know my office door is closed until three o'clock unless you're bleeding. So it's not that I'm saying just because somebody needs something, we drop everything and give them our full attention. Absolutely not. 
But what I am saying is this, rise and grind, get your groove on, have your boundaries. But when it's go time and we need to be in parent mode, we've got to do a better job of putting down the laptop, putting down the phone. And when I say we, I mean me, you know I'm struggling with this because they're not ours for very long. I was talking to another friend, Rashawn. Shout outs, Rashawn. It was so good to see you the other day. And she has raised not just one, but two incredible sons who are now launched into the world. And we caught up, literally, I ran into her in front of Whole Foods. And when I asked how her boys were doing and how she was feeling about being an empty nester, she said she loves it. She said she loves seeing her sons thrive and make their way. She said to me, they don't belong to us. They are on loan. And our job is to see that they can do something in the world. I love that she said that because I feel that. I feel that the period of time we have with these miniature humans is short and it's agonizing and it's maddening and incredible and joy-filled and finite. It reminds me of one of my favorite all-time teachings from the New Testament when Jesus was doing his parable thing. And it's called the parable of the talents. And you probably remember this parable, but talent doesn't mean talent in the story. It means money. A talent was a sum of money, apparently, like a decent chunk of money. Think thousands, right? And in the story, there's a master and three servants. And the master starts giving out money to his servants before a big trip. And basically, to the first servant, he gives five talents. Let's pretend that's five grand. To another servant, he gives two. And to one servant, he just gives a single talent or a thousand bucks, let's say. And basically, he gives to each servant what he thinks they're capable of handling. And he wants them to take care of his investment, take care of his money, do right by his money. And then he goes off on a long journey. The servant with the five talents goes and makes really good investments, and he makes five more talents. The second guy who got two does the same, doubled his investment. But the third guy with one talent, he buried it. He was so afraid something would happen to it. He just buried it, kept it safe. So the master comes back and he's so happy with his first two servants. He's like, good job, guys. You did your thing. I'm very happy with you. I'm going to shower you with even more now that I see I can trust you with this. But then he comes to the final servant. And the final servant basically says, listen, master, you are a very hard man to please. You like to reap where you did not sow. And I, I was afraid of you. So I buried your money and nothing happened to you. I kept it safe, but I definitely didn't make anything of it. And the master is pissed. He's so furious. In fact, he throws this guy out in, into the wilderness. He banishes him. With, you know, In biblical times, that was basically a death sentence. What I love about that parable is that it's a parable about courage and risk. It's about knowing what problem you're solving for. And to me, it is the parable for parenting. Because on any given day, we're the first, second, and the third servant. And those children are the talents we've been given. We have moments of triumph and letting go and supporting at the right levels, and we turn those talents into 5x what they were, and we nail it. But then we have moments where our fear completely shuts down our appetite for risk and courage and wholeheartedness, and we end up stifling the growth of our kids. Now, do I believe God's going to punish us for our bad behavior? Of course not. Jesus, if he does, I'm screwed, right? I don't believe in that kind of God. But I do believe that sometimes we humans need warnings. 
And I need the parable of the talents to remind me what I'm solving for. And here's the truth of what I like to remind myself. These kids aren't mine. They belong to the world and the world will take them from me in some way or another. Some of us literally lose our children to accidents, to disease or worse, but all of us figuratively lose them. And while we still have them, we're meant to feed them, clothe them, love them, and get them ready to launch, get them ready to contribute and become additive to a world that desperately needs additive human beings. It's not easy, but it's the assignment. It's the assignment. So listen, good luck. Know I'm in the trenches with you. A huge thank you to all the people that gave me their brilliant ideas and that gave me their heart, their voices, their honesty, and their creativity. And as always, if you feel called, please do rate and review this show. It makes a huge difference for this little labor of love. And shine on you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time. <laughs>